Thank you for marking number 31, and we'll sing that song a bit later in our service this morning. As has already been mentioned, it truly is a, a wonderful blessing we've each been given today to assemble and to gather in this way, that our health is sufficient, that it has made this possible, and we're so thankful for God's blessing along that line as well. It was also mentioned, certainly, that we continue to, to battle some unusual times in this land, and certainly even around the world as well. And we certainly appeal to the greatness of God and His providence and His majesty to overrule in all these matters and to lead us and to help us navigate the path in such a way that it would continue to be pleasing in His sight. You may have already noted that we're going to devote a little time to the 10th chapter in Leviticus this morning, so I hope you'll be turning back to that location. Brother Colonel read just a few moments, the first three verses of that chapter, and we will revisit those in some detail shortly. But as we do that, may I say that the, the next statement of introduction is this one. And doesn't it remind us of something that's probably obvious? We might well recall in 1 Chronicles 16, 29, the, the biblical writer said, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. God's name is majestic and magnificent and great, and it is deserving of our highest adoration. But that verse goes on to say, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And so as we desire to offer our worship to Him, it's always our keen interest to do so in the spirit of holiness and in the spirit following the matters of instruction that He has given us. I say all of that to say that we learn some valuable lessons, quite frankly, some dramatic warnings from the episode concerning Nadab and Abihu. It is the case, as you'll notice the bottom of that slide, these may be names that are more familiar to some than they are to others, but they are biblical characters. And their names have echoed down the stream of time. And they speak as loudly today as they did then. They, in fact, shout amazingly several lessons. And why don't we devote some attention this morning to just a few of them. Leviticus chapter 10. I'd like to, in fact, reread that passage. And as we do that... I'd like to at least cast a spotlight on the setting, and then we'll devote the rest of the time to a reflection on the passage itself. As far as the setting, you may remember that the Old Testament, the Law of Moses in particular, had placed a significant emphasis upon the priesthood. And by that I mean God had handpicked Aaron as the high priest. That meant that not anyone could serve as the high priest. God had selected Aaron, and not only that... He had selected the sons of Aaron to carry forward the nature of that effort we would call the priesthood. Rather interestingly, you may already appreciate the following. Two chapters prior to the one that we will be looking at this morning, in Leviticus chapter 8, God had in fact authorized and ordained a very special solemn service to install the priesthood. Now by that I mean on that particular day, and it must have been a very solemn occasion, Moses called Aaron by command of God, and he put some special clothing upon him. And this was done in the presence of the entire congregation of Israel. Nobody could claim, I did not know this. Aaron was invested in the garments. The Urim and Thummim was placed upon the ephod. The particular headdress was placed upon his head. 
Moses even took anointing oil and poured it upon Aaron's head in the presence of everybody, anointing him as the high priest. And as God proceeded through the nature of that chapter, He pointed out the particulars of the activities in which he was to participate, what this man Aaron was to do in this position. You might well notice in all of that particular matter. Now the question comes, Aaron, of course, was arriving at a somewhat later point in his life. Who would succeed him? Well, you and I know that Aaron had four boys. There was Nadab and Abihu, the two oldest, and then there were two younger ones, Eleazar and Ithamar. We know that because the book of Exodus has detailed the names of those sons. And you and I learn something rather dramatic as we appreciate Leviticus chapter 10. I've asked you to notice it at the bottom, and now let me reread the passage. After having been installed as priest, namely Aaron and his sons occupying this position, the text then reads like this. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. It might be rather intriguing to observe. Here was Aaron who had just witnessed, or at least had become very aware of the death of his two oldest sons. A traumatic time, an overwhelmingly emotional time, and yet in that Aaron held his peace, the text says. He apparently had been motivated to appreciate some dramatic lessons and some things that you and I, of course, will attempt to revisit even today. And so it is, as you can appreciate the bottom of that slide, here were the two oldest sons of Aaron. They were participating in some kind of a service, call it worship if you please. And as they were officiating in this sense, they took their censers and they put some incense in it. They put fire in it. But the problem is it was that which the Lord had not commanded. And the text in the next verse says, Fire from God devoured them. Kill them on the spot. Now we notice in the verses that follow, men were called and proceeded to bury the bodies and take care of all the things that are to be done. But what took place here was to be a lasting lesson. It was to be an ongoing, perpetual set of truths. What were some of the ideas that you and I might note today? First of all, may I suggest this one, which may be the most obvious one. The last few words in verse 1. What was wrong with the fire they offered? What was wrong with the thing that had been done? The text informs us. If I may again quote, it says, "...which he, that he refers to God, commanded them not." A few introductory thoughts would be these. All throughout the Word of God, we are reminded on so many occasions about the place of authority when it comes to directing service to God. That's true in regard to worship. It's true, in fact, in regard to any element in service that the church or, yea, Christians individually might offer to God. 
that principle is echoed in passages such as the ones I've asked you to carefully note with me. In Mark chapter 11, now Matthew, Mark, and Luke all make note of this. But Mark's version puts it so directly. You might recall with me that Jesus had become a bit upset, or shall I say angry, at what was going on in the temple. And He had come and, you may remember, had said some things and made a cord, drove away the animals, turned over the money changers' tables. And those who had the authority, or so they thought at the temple, were rather upset by what the Master had done. In fact, they came to Him and said, Who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus said, I tell you what, i got a question for you too. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? You tell me and I'll answer your question. Now, didn't the Lord, in fact, highlight there are only two ultimate sources when it comes to religion? Either a given thing is from God or it's from men. There is no third option. Either it is from God and it has divine authority attached to it, or else it is the concoction of the mind of man. Now, with the Lord making that statement, isn't it true that even they in Acts 4 verse 7 had something like that in mind? Here, Peter and John had just healed that, that man that was lame. That had happened in the previous chapter. And as Peter and John were being questioned about this, you might recall that that same group said, By what authority have you done this? Same idea. It is with that in mind I would ask you to note this. Nadab and Abihu, you see, were not at liberty to carry out this service to offer this means in any way they saw fit. God had given His details. He had given the particulars with respect to the manner in which the incense and the fire and the other matters were to be offered. And Adab and Abihu were not given the liberty of altering it, redefining it, changing it, or in other way modifying it. God had said what He meant, and He meant what He said. It is with that thought in mind, I would invite you then to note this. All throughout the Word of God, worship has been rather highly regulated. What about Cain and Abel? On almost the first episode in the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, both of them brought their offerings to God. Abel, you and I remember, had brought an animal sacrifice he had brought, you see, of his flock. Cain, on the other hand, brought of his vegetables. He brought that which he had grown. Both of them had offered. Both of them had brought. Both of them had, in fact, approached unto God. But God was pleased with one. He was displeased with the other one. I wonder why. Is it not the same principle? We learn in Hebrews 11, verse 7, By faith Abel offered. Abel, you see, had offered by faith. But aren't we told in Romans 10, 17, that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. God had given information about the character of what was to be offered, and Cain chose not to do that, whereas Abel, his brother, did. We already learned there, you see, about the carefulness with which worship must be approached. And so you and I lift high the banner of striving always to remember the Master's words. In John 4, verse 24, God is a spirit, 
And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. There are two attributes, two features, if you please, that the Lord defined as characteristic of true worship. It might be interesting to notice He said true worship involves this. There are many kinds of worship that wouldn't fit this category. It isn't true worship. But true worship must involve the Spirit, meaning we have a passion for it. We have an enthusiasm for it. Our interest is in it. We want to be doing it. But you see, passion and desire alone isn't enough. He said it's and truth as well. And so we couple that passion, that enthusiasm and desire with truth. And truth as we've already learned. Jesus said it like this in John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. And therefore, we would look into finding the authorization in the Bible for, let's say, that which is done in the attribute of worship. And with that authorization found, we wholeheartedly participate and we have every confidence that God is pleased with that worship. For that reason, you'll note about the bottom of the slide, we might now ask, I wonder what motivated Nadab and Abihu to do what they did. Have you ever wondered about that? It says they offered strange fire, fire which God hadn't commanded. I wonder why they would have done this. Well, I'll freely confess, the Bible does not say. We don't know what motivated them to act upon this, upon this character. Several possibilities could exist. Could it be that they simply said, I don't care what God has said, I don't like doing it that way, and I'm not going to do it that way? That would be rather presumptuous rebellion to God. That might have been what they were thinking, but it might not have been. Maybe they were motivated by convenience. You know what? If we take this fire and take care of the sacrifice, we'll have more time to serve God in another way. So let's hurry up, take care of this offering... And we'll have plenty then of additional time to serve Him even better in some other way. Maybe that's what they thought. I would point out, it doesn't matter what they thought. And it doesn't matter what motivated it. Maybe it was rebellion. Maybe it was convenience. Point is, since the Bible doesn't say, either and all of them would meet exactly the same result. They died. And it didn't matter what the motivation was. It didn't matter what it was that may have prompted them to suppose they could serve this way. Today, the lesson is rather immediate, isn't it? At the bottom, it doesn't make any difference about my feeling, my convenience, my emotion. If the Word of God has given specification with respect to, let's say, the worship or other elements in service, then we are not at liberty to change them. We are not at liberty to try to refashion them in such a way that it's more palatable to us. God has never allowed that concerning His commandments. This lesson about authority, doesn't it remind us of, a, of the sovereignty of God? I've asked you to appreciate a few more verses, or at least a few other ideas, upon which we can build even further. In Colossians 3, verse 17, as Paul again would write, this was a number of years after the Lord has already been crucified. And he said, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. 
maybe it would do us well to reflect on what about that phrase, in the name of? What really does that mean? What sense does it suggest? It would seem to me that we're more or less accustomed to thinking along that line because of this reason. If a particular officer were to show up at your house or mine and say, open up in the name of the law, I think we all know what that means. Due to the jurisdiction of civil authority, this person is demanding that I open the door and that he may serve me a warrant or whatever else may be his business. But in the name of means by the authority of. The same thing is true in this passage. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all by the authority of Jesus. We have to find then that positive authorization in the wonderful Word of God that gives us the stamp of His approval upon that which is done. Is it any wonder then the following statement is so easily to be noted? We apply this principle and we do so in dramatic and powerful ways. You and I have just lovingly sang songs together this morning. We lifted up our voices, the fruit of our lips, Hebrews 13, 15. And as we did all of that, we were appreciative of the fact the New Testament does mention music and worship. We are convinced that that does not permit a piano up here in the corner played during worship. Why not? We could be singing along with it. We'd be singing, would we not? Fact is, that's not authorized. That text in Colossians 3.16, a piano can never satisfy it. That text in Hebrews 5.19, a piano can't satisfy it. And therefore we know then that the instrument that God has identified as the human heart, that's what's played during our singing. And so it is that you'll notice how far-reaching the idea of the authority of the Word of God is. Maybe another appreciation. What about the preaching and its attachment to that? Acts 20 verse 7, Paul preached till midnight during the course of that service, and we appreciate in other passages such as 2 Timothy 4 that you and I expect then that a preacher has the authority to preach the Word of God to stand up here and preach the Wall Street Journal, or to preach the latest matters in terms of societal issues, that would not only be a waste of your time, it would be wholly unauthorized by the nature of the Word of God. Isn't it amazing that that principle of authority leads then to these? Every aspect of our worship, be it our prayers, be it our Lord's Supper observance, be it our contribution. As the New Testament has made identification about these things, then we thrillingly look forward to fulfilling them as God has said. That is the way that He has directed it to be done. And so as we meet today, and as we do so at the other times of our service, it is simply our goal and desire to let God dictate and determine what's done and the way it's done. Because Nadab and Abihu teach us the warning of what happens if you don't. That's not to say that God would bring fire and devour you and I instantly today like He did then. But wouldn't it be frightful to arrive at judgment before the august presence of His great being and have to give an answer, but I said I wanted it done this way. Why didn't you do it that way?
we'll be left speechless with nothing that we can say. May I say that there's at least two more lessons, though, and why don't we look at them? It is something that God rather dramatically said. Would you revisit with me verse 3, Leviticus 10? So after the death of Nadab and Abihu, it says, Then Moses said unto Aaron, so here's one brother addressing another one, and Aaron's sons had just died. Moses said this to him, This is it that the Lord spake. Moses wasn't simply saying what he felt, what it was that was his estimation of the situation. Moses had to tell Aaron, This is what God informed me. This is the information that you need to know. I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. Don't you find it a bit interesting? A dad had just lost his two oldest sons. I do not hear in this a great deal of appreciation of emotional understanding. They should have known better than this. They should have, in fact, appreciated apparently something rather different than this. And Moses speaking to Aaron says, This is what God said. I, that I referring to God, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. What Nadab and Abihu had done did not sanctify God. They may have offered. They may have engaged in service in various ways. But God said, I'm going to be sanctified in those that come near me. As you and I develop that, what does the word sanctify mean? Perhaps that will be of great help to us. It literally means to set apart, to consecrate. God says, I will be set apart. I will be declared as holy by those who come near me. You can't come near God flippantly, trivially, without attention to due detail. His presence is too holy for that. He will not be approached that way. And what Nadab and Abihu had done... Regardless what motivated it, they had made an attempt to come before Him, and in so doing, they didn't set Him duly apart as holy. Maybe one final thing would be this. That concept of sanctification is so vital for you and me today. The principle of it is still, of course, very much in force. Now, I realize we don't live beneath the law of Moses. We don't go kill an animal like a bullock or a lamb and strive to offer that. We don't do that. But the principle of the sanctification of God through His Word is still vital. To borrow that same phrase Jesus mentioned earlier that that we noted in John 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is truth. Jesus, praying to God, said, Set them apart, the apostles, who He was talking about then, set them apart through Your Word. How are we set apart today? Do we not learn in 2 Thessalonians 2.14? It's by the Word. You and I are set apart, sanctified, declared to be the priests of the Christian era by virtue of our commitment to and obedience to the things of the Word of God. No wonder that light, we close that slide and say this, the only way to declare the sanctification of God is to follow what He has said. I cannot do what I want and claim it will sanctify Him. 
it'll sanctify me if I do what I want. It will draw the attention to me if I do what I want. But if I submissively and obediently do what He has commanded, that will direct the glory, the credit, if you please, to Him. The last thing in verse 3 that Moses shared with Aaron... Again, it reads, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. The other verb that I'll use is the last part of the lesson. And this too was apparently something that both Nadab and Abihu had failed. It has to do with this issue of glorification. God again through Moses speaking said, before all the people. Remember, the congregation of Israel was such that their worship had been specified and directed, and now here before them had been the two sons of Aaron, high-ranking officials, and they had done something differently. And if that kind of error were allowed to continue, well, it wouldn't take long before the worship would degenerate into that which was completely unacceptable, because it already was. It was not supposed to be done this way. God says, I will be glorified. One of the grandest themes in all the Bible is the absolute sovereignty of God. How that He is great, He is infinite, and we are not. He is majestic, and we aren't. He is sinless, and we are. And the list could go on and on. And yet, as we approach to Him, He is holy. And as you and I thus find ourselves living up on this earth, often surrounded by those who choose unholiness, who choose unrighteousness, who choose the pathway of iniquity and sin, God says, My word is to be obeyed. And these two that should have been representatives of setting that example for one and all, they have erred, and I will be glorified. As you and I develop those thoughts on this slide, you might notice about the model about the middle. I suppose we're all tempted toward the thought of glorification of ourself. I like my way of thinking and you like your way of thinking. We're comfortable with that. That's the way I've always seen it. That's the way I'm happy doing it. And especially if others will give an approval to it, why, what could be wrong with it? But you see, the same thing could be asked here. What Nadab and Abihu serving at the tabernacle? That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. Weren't they taking care of offering and offerings were supposed to be made at the tabernacle? Weren't they in fact doing this in the presence of people who perhaps were directing attention to God? The answer is yes. That didn't change the fact that what they were doing was not consistent with what God had revealed. Their glory was being directed more to them than it was to God. God again said, Before all the people, I will be glorified. As you and I close that slide, I would etch in our thinking the, the dramatic words in Ephesians 3.21, Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. God is to be glorified through Christ. There's the issue of authority again. We can't direct glory to God without doing it through the agency, through the channel of Jesus Christ. And as we close that slide, the God of heaven is eminently worthy 
of great respect and worship. He is worthy of great glorification. If we learn anything in the Revelation, surely it must be that. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and blessing. Revelation 5 verse 12. And we find in that very same letter that when the Lamb took the book out of the right hand of, of God, those four elders and all the beasts, they fell on their face, worshiping, recognizing the greatness of Jesus the Christ. Today, as we've assembled on, a, on an occasion such as this one, striving to offer our heartfelt adoration and glorification to God, we do so in truth and in spirit. And we do so in a way that we might close our lesson like this. Nadab and Abihu died a very tragic, sad, horrific kind of death. But the scene has been recorded for us in Leviticus chapter 10. And it has been a hallmark matter of lessons for ages now, and it shall until time shall be no more. For in that study we've been reminded about the greatness of authority. It is not our business to decide what I want to do to serve God. It's what has He told me needs to be done and make sure I do it in the way He has said for the reason He has said. Anything else is not obedience. But not only the lesson of authority, what about sanctification? The desire to set apart as holy, not only God, but that which is in service to Him. The only way to do that is to do what He has said. Finally, to glorify Him. To do all of this, not for our credit, not for our name, but to do it such that His cause and His kingdom is lifted high. It is with all that said that we come today in thankfulness, as has been mentioned in prayer this morning, for this opportunity to worship. And we have been recharged in such a way that it will prepare us for hopefully a week of faithful service, a week of direct and powerful service to the greatness of Jesus Christ our Lord. Today, if we could be of some assistance to anyone who is in this assembly, perhaps by way of a person who's never become a Christian, you have never at this point, though you know you need to, you know the Lord died at Calvary for you, and you know that you're a sinner, and you know you're lost, but to this point, perhaps due to nervousness or otherwise, you've just never had the conviction. Why not do that today? You could leave this building and your soul safe in the keeping of the hands of the God of heaven. We could do that as we take note of your belief and your repentance, your confession, your baptism. If you have become a Christian, though, at some time in life, but have not remained faithful, you've allowed choices in life to move you in a direction to where what your life currently is is not a glorification to the cause of heaven. It is more a message in disgrace because of what you once were, but what you no longer are. You realize you can change. The Bible calls that repentance. And if we could help you today by praying to God, if you will confess those things and you'll repent of them, He's promised to forgive them. Otherwise, if you just need prayers of strength, maybe you're facing particular battles or issues in life and you just like the collective prayers of strength from an assembly such as this one, we'd be happy to pray for you. If any of those things would be the need of your life, we would not only invite but encourage you to come while together we stand and while we sing.